welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Knowing Podcast. I am Ama Lonesome here to offer you a little introduction to the podcast today as uh, I am joined again with a very special guest on the podcast today rather than the kind of usual conversations with Allison and myself. And uh, man, it is just such a treat and such an honor to be able to host people in this space, to be able to reach out to people who I have gained so much from either through their writings or speakings and teachings or creative works um, and and who have had such an impact on my personal process. And it's like this kind of awesome, sneaky way that I get to talk to all the people that totally blow my mind um, and I get to bring it into this space. So today's guest is someone who, God, for well, at least the last 10 years or so, has had a huge impact on my, um, really, you know, the the deeper reaches of my psychological experience and healing process. But as he aims to help individuals and the collective, really, to integrate psychological and spiritual human experience, um, it just, his work has offered this, uh, you know, second to none sort of opportunity to look at psychological aspects of my experience through a sp- spiritual lens, really, and understand um, how beautifully they weave together. And there are many people in the world who do this kind of work, but none, I think, or very few with the eloquency and, and capacity of Dave Rico. And you may know Dave Rico as the author of How to Be an Adult, a rather brilliantly um, named book. <laughs> Just as an aside, if you ever really want to like piss off or, uh, I don't know, cause troubles uh, in a relationship, you want to piss somebody off, you should probably get them this book and hand it to them and say, you know, here, I, I think you should read this. It, speaking from experience, it doesn't go over so well. And uh, definitely something, it, it's, it's a provocative title. But he, oh man, seriously, you have to go get this book if you have not interacted with it because he so clearly and and really succinctly, it's a tiny little book, um, offers such a profoundly insightful idea of how to gain confidence as a human being, how as adults, you know, it's it's different than how we gain confidence when we're kids how to um, really relate to this self on all of these different levels. He's got practices, he's got affirmations in the book. And then um, Dave takes his this work, you know, of just the, the individual's experience and expands it in his other books. And I mean, he is prolific. Um, he's written, I can't even remember how many books, 20 books or something. Uh, but he has books on how to be an adult in relationships, how to be an adult in love. You know, um, I, in preparing for this interview, and I think I referenced it in the interview, I started looking on my bookshelf and realized, you know, how many books of his I actually have and could then reflect on the impact that they'd had on me at the particular times that I was engaging with them. So When Love Meets Fear, 
brilliant. Five things we cannot change when the past is present, daring to trust. I think you can probably gather from the titles. These are really transformative books and really uh, speak to some core challenges we have as human beings in the relationship with self, in the relationship with reality, and in the relationship with each other. So um, Dave is a psychotherapist. He is a licensed family and um, marriage therapist. He lives in the state of California. He's a writer. He's an amazing teacher. And he just yeah, he, again, he, he just has this incredible way of framing human nature, human nature in relationship, um, weaving, you know, these Jungian, Buddhist, mythic, poetic influences into his teachings, all with uh, the intention of helping us be both body, mind, and spirit, be all those three things um, at the same time, which is no small feat or easy task but he makes it look easy. So I really hope you enjoy the interview. Um, please, if you have any questions, as always, if you have any requests for people that you would like to hear or, or see on the podcast, please reach out and just uh, CL at clgrove.com or on Instagram at clgrove. But with no further ado, I bring you Dave Rico. Welcome, Dave. Welcome to uh, The Knowing Podcast. It's really amazing to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, your, uh, your work has been hugely impactful on my personal process, on the way that I work with clients, and I mean, the way that I form relationships. Um, and I, it was interesting, actually, going into my bookshelf and I was looking for how to be an adult because that was what we sort of discussed as the focus of this interview. And I was like, oh, and there's this other Dave Rico book and this other one. And it was like, I, I didn't actually realize how much of my library was filled with your writing. So it's it's huge. Um, I also realized though, uh, which I'm sure you recognize that this is 30 years since you wrote that book. And so given the the content of, of the book, uh, I mean, it's it's obviously still relevant to me. I mean, 30 years after the, the writing of it, do you find yourself, you know, looking at the book and, and revising aspects of it at all? Actually, I, it was my very first book and um, I looked through it and I do feel comfortable with everything that's in there. Yeah. I'm in the process of revising my other book because it's uh, 20 years since I wrote uh, How to Be an Adult in Relationships. Right. And um, that one I am revising. Oh, okay. The original one is staying the same. Yeah, it has. The original um, How to Be an Adult. Okay, it does. I mean, it has such a timeless quality to it. It's such a, I mean, truly a logical quality to it. But one of the most amazing things I find in your work is this uh, ability you have to interweave psychological concepts and healing practice with a spiritual wisdom. Um, can I ask you, I mean, on a personal level, how did you come to this work? I found Buddhism in 1971. And also around that time, I became more interested in Jung, Carl Jung. And so those two, in addition to my Catholic background, mm. uh, they all kind of came together for me. And uh, I designed a spirituality based on those three. Hmm. It's, it's, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, On Being with Krista Tippett. 
the podcast, she often starts her interviews with that question of, you know, what are the spiritual sort of underpinnings of people's work? And it's so interesting. I find again that like you could take those disparate systems in a sense and find this cohesive, like really brilliant thread of, of wisdom to come out of it. Was it challenging? I mean, having a Catholic background to, to interweave those things? Uh, yes, it was very challenging. Joseph Campbell helped a lot because okay. he's the first one who gave me the idea that the teachings in a religion could be thought of as metaphors regarding the bigger life that's in all of us. So when we think of the divine as, uh, you know, separate up in some person with a white beard up in the sky, <clears throat> we're not seeing things in their full perspective, which from my point of view would be to acknowledge the divine life that's in all human hearts and in all nature. Mm -hmm. So it would be a combination of what's inside you and all around you. Mm -hmm. Once the world is no longer flat, there's no longer up and down. There's just around. So uh, that way of looking at it moved me from a more traditional connection to religion. And also I let go of the institutional side of it. Right. I just try to find the metaphorical riches which all religions have. Right. And so your intention, if we can maybe go back to the, the book, the How to Be an Adult, your intention in writing this, um, I mean, did you, in a sense, start with the end in mind of what does a, a fully actualized adult human being look like and, and sort of work backwards from there? Or, I mean, I, I know in the book, you start off by um, articulating this kind of reckoning we all have to make and, and a good relationship we have to develop with fear and and guilt and anger as these like primary controlling emotions. Um, did you start there? Or I, I guess that's a kind of a vague question, but sort of a, an entry into the book. Oh, that makes sense. First of all, the title, How to Be an Adult, would immediately lead most people to such phrases as act responsibly, fulfill your goals in life, right. um, be respectful of others, build your self-esteem. And I thought to myself, well, everybody already knows that. But what are some of the other features that round us out as full-on adults? And it occurred to me that that would be a combination of such issues as making sense and finally being free of whatever in your childhood or in the past has uh, hobbled you or stunted your growth. Looking at the three issues in life that are so difficult for everyone, the ones you just mentioned, fear, anger, and guilt, becoming assertive in the world so that you speak up for yourself rather than being aggressive or passive, the other two ends of the spectrum, and also building your self-esteem. Then I thought, well, that's just giving me the psychological side of it, but what would be the spiritual side? And that's where I went to the Jungian approach, which reminds us that we all have a hidden side of ourselves, which you call the shadow. So I have a chapter on each of these topics. Mm -hmm. 
the ones I just mentioned, plus the shadow, plus dreams. And I thought, well, these are the spiritual dimensions. They're not as tangible as the ones I mentioned before. And when you combine all these, that would be the integrating of the psychological and the spiritual. So the second half of the book is about the shadow, dreams, how we open to a higher self than ego, how we move toward unconditional love. And when you put all of this together, that gives us a picture of an adult that is more than just a person who acts responsibly. So it's a richer sense of what adultshood is. Mm-hmm. So that's how the idea came together. Okay. It's so, again, it's, it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Another quote that I found of yours online of just talking about these, I think you called them like three layers or levels of potential. And it was such a beautiful way to think of a human being as like the psychological, the spiritual, and then the mystical potential, I think was the the third component, which again, it's like such a rich idea of, of what a human being is possible, what is possible within us instead of just someone who pays the bills and, you know, gets stuff done and accomplishes stuff. It's so much more, uh, I don't know, multidimensional. Have you had any um, engagement or uh, exposure to shamanic practices and, and philosophy? I mean, having um, Joseph Campbell's sort of mythological stuff there. Yeah, I've learned a lot about it, but I haven't had actual experience of it. Okay. When I was living in San Francisco, and um, this is actually what the predominant theme and and topic of the podcast is, is on shamanic medicine. I studied with a, a South American shaman in San Francisco for five years while I was living down there. And when reading your book, you know, um, the concept of accountability versus aggressiveness, you know, in shamanic practice, we call that impeccability. And it is this, the question of like, are you really aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it in the world? And that is like the central part. And that really stands out in your work as well. Do you think all people are capable of doing that, Dave? Like of actually, you know, having full accountability? Absolutely. It's um, just sad that because of the various traumas in life and because of the hard knocks that we, so many of us have gone through, that we just never got our chance to activate those kind of potentials. Mm-hmm. But an important feature of Buddhism is that you never give up on anyone, that uh, everyone has a Buddha nature that is an enlightened nature. Um, that we do have wonderful light inside of us. And uh, sadly, uh, many of us don't ever allow it to shine as fully as Mm -hmm. we could. Mm -hmm. You you talk and write quite frequently about, um, I mean, the almost the beauty of our wounds, also in a, a Jungian or hero mythology kind of way, you know, that the wounds are this gateway into these beautiful parts of us. Um, Is that, I mean, in your clinical experience and personal experience too, generally what motivates people to enter into this path is actually pain that it, or can we, can we offer something to other human beings? um, I don't know, holding safety, you know, presence that actually can motivate them to want to look into their, their traumas. 
Well, first of all, yes, it would be wonderful to uh, be with someone as he or she explores the various traumatic events from the past, mm -hmm. which could go all the way back to childhood. But we also have to be extremely cautious because trauma releases itself in accord with its own timing. You right. can't just make it work itself out. It has to honor this inner readiness of the psyche to allow it to emerge. So if your computer is broken, you can fix it right now. Mm -hmm. There's no waiting. But when there's something broken inside of us, it, it requires a certain courteous uh, courtesy on our part and on the therapist's part or on anyone on anyone's part to take it slow and to only let the parts emerge that we're ready for. Right. So I'm just throwing that in as mm. you know, kind of a And then caution. again, it's, it's such an interesting correlation with, with shamanic practice that the most important tool we have is actually our patience as we're walking the path, you know, our ability to not have an idea or an expectation of what is supposed is going to unfold when we want it to unfold and, and offering that to other people. It's, it's such an interesting, I, I mean, almost juxtaposition of like how fast our civilization is moving and we want things quickly. And our, you know, typical Western medicine is really invested in doing things quickly, you know, and having things be a, a sort of immediate effect. How do you help people with patience? How do you help people develop that that sense of you know being able to let their traumas unfold in the in the divine time that they're meant to? Well, I try to model that by acting very respectfully of people's timing, mm -hmm. and that is the equivalent of patience, and not trying to rush something that's really not ready for revelation. Once you get it that the timing is built into the process of healing, you automatically act patiently. Right. It would be a good equivalent is the difference between making a hot dog. So just, you know, throw it onto the skillet, roll it around, and you're all set. And making bread in which you have to wait for the timing of the dough mm -hmm. over which you have no control. You can make the heat under the hot dog high, low, whatever you want. You'll decide the time of its readiness. But when it comes to kneading the dough and then covering it with a cloth, you have no control over that. So you're going to be awaiting its timing. Right. And the human psyche is more like that. It's more like dough that rises in its own way in each of the areas that we're here to work on. So that explains why people might uh, stay too long in what doesn't work. And it looks like they're just afraid or procrastinating, but there's actually a timing chain that they are forced to follow. Mm -hmm. and everyone's signing change is different. So you leave on Monday, but I can't leave till Tuesday. The guy next door can't leave till Wednesday, so forth. Okay. Why it's like this, it's a mystery, but I would imagine that things have to come together 
in the psyche and settle in such a way that you won't be destabilized by leaving too soon, too early, mm-hmm. or waiting too long. So there's a just right, like in Goldilocks. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, it's up to us to find that. So patience to me is not just sitting and waiting for something to happen. It's honoring the time that is needed for something to happen. So it's a little different spin on it. Totally. Yeah. Which can be exceptionally it's difficult. Like waiting. It's, oh, it's not like the patience, two kinds of patience. So there's the patience at the DMV. <laughs> I have to just wait uh-huh. until it's my turn. Uh-huh. We all get it. Canadians don't get it though, Dave. Unfortunately, Canadians, we don't have the DMV up here. When I lived in the States, I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. It's so bad. (laughs) Canada doesn't have the same sort of thing. (laughs) But sorry, I interrupted you because you were saying the second kind of patience. The first kind is like, I just have to wait for this, you know? And the second kind, what I'm hearing is like, it's, it's more... I don't even know how to organic. Use. Yeah, yeah. That's something organically that has its own organic timing. Right. And do you think that that's maybe, you know, I find in a lot of people, we have this um, very intense idea that our timing is the right timing. The when we think things should happen is the right time. And we've lost organic time, natural time, whatever we want, sacred time, you know. And in the in the shamanic tradition, you know, the instruction is we go back to the earth and and find our sense of being held there to to ask basically to re-enter into that time because that's where we can find grace. That's where we can actually, you know, truly thrive as a human being. But with so many, with most people, you know, living in cities and and highly disconnected from natural time, and and we live in a pretty synthetic environment a lot of the time, you know, like. How do you get people back into that connection with organic patience, organic time? Uh, one of the things I found helpful in my own life and that I recommend is the mindfulness mm. style in which we just um, let ourselves be in the here and now and uh, let go of that um, compulsion to make things happen. Mm-hmm. We're just kind of going with the flow of things. Right. So I think that's how meditation could help us with this whole idea of patience and timing. Right. It is such a tricky thing I find with with then bringing trauma back into the picture that um, if I'm working with a client who has a lot of active, I mean, still really unintegrated, uh, intense trauma, mindfulness sometimes can be really exceptionally difficult, if not kind of dangerous for them because it brings them into it too intensely. And so I guess I'm, I'm always, you know, dancing with them in that sense of going, how do I help you come into this moment and tolerate and some of the pain that's here, you know, but not be overwhelmed by it completely. And, and it, it's, it's such a, a nuanced sort of dance in that sense, you know, to not take them too far, but then not also, you know, not take them in at all, basically. So to come back to the, the book and the principles, um, you offer these statements that we have to recognize or you, you recommend that as human adults, we aspire to recognize that these are not true statements, you know, that we are, and I, I wrote them down here, but that we are, you know, solid identities separate from everything else, um, that there's something outside ourselves that can fulfill our longing and answer our needs, and it'll last forever. 
um, that our next task is uh, that we must let go of the illusion that we are in control. And then we have to let go of this idea that as adults, we, we deserve to be taken care of. And I hear this from people a lot is, you know, I deserve this. This is what I deserve. And these are, I mean, these are really hard things to let go of. And certainly something that I think is pretty common for most human adults walking around. Um, this, I mean, it's, it's so psychological in, in, in content. It, you know, is this done or do you, when you're working with people, do you use like cognitive behavioral therapy or how are you helping them question these, these beliefs? The, well, what you're referring to are what I would call... Um, uh, the features of the inflated ego, also called the big ego, mm-hmm. that's the part of us that believes we're entitled to special treatments, to uh, have everybody kowtow to our wishes and needs, to uh, be in control of others. And it has a kind of an arrogance to it. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to move into the healthy adulthood which we could describe as a healthy ego. Ego is just a Latin word for I. So if I am a person who is here to be taken care of by others and have others meet my expectations and be in control of them, that is not going to move me into the other option, which is to be an equal among equals, to be uh, here as someone with humility rather than arrogance, who has let go of trying to control others but honors their choices, uh, and somebody who is no longer in the grip of fear that things won't happen exactly as I want them to happen. All of those are qualities of the inflated ego, but the healthy ego is trying to see the other side and go to the other side, where, of course, there's much less stress in your life because you're not compulsively trying to get everything to fit the way you demand that it fit. Be something like the stepsisters in Cinderella who try to squeeze their big feet into the glass slipper. It's not going to work. <laughs> right. It's just supposed to slip in and be exactly right. And that only happens when you're authentic. Mm-hmm. Because as in the story, Cinderella is the authentic one. And the authenticity includes humility. It includes going with what fits for me my limitations, my talents. And uh, I'm happy that I have certain talents. I'm aware of my limitations, trying to work on them. That's what you sound like when you come from the healthy ego rather than the arrogant ego. So I try to explain that in the book. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and you do an amazing job of of doing it. It's like, it's always, I guess, the the question, as I suppose, especially as a therapist myself, but as a human being to go, how is this done in practice, you know, and I said, I tend to have a lot of conversations with people around this concept of psychological safety, as a kind of precursor or requirement to be able to go into the wounding of our, you know, our unhealthy ego or neurotic ego and 
Um, I'm sure you're familiar with like Stephen Porges's work in polyvagal theory mm-hmm. and and his emphasis on and you know many therapists uh, emphasis on the therapeutic alliance and that safety within that space. And it would appear to me that on a social level, we are trying right now to, to make more safety for people. It would seem, you know, like um, creating a, a, a less um, violence and, and, you know, critical sort of feedback to people of all types, diversifying what is acceptable and seen as normal in our society. And, you know, on one hand, I think that that is so beautiful and amazing. But on the other hand, that it it kind of falls back into this idea of one of the the illusions that we we're just talking about that like, you know, something out there has to make me happy. Right. And if we overemphasize that like people need to be safe for us, then we're not going to be able to move into growth. Do you agree or does that make sense to you? Mm, yes, very much so. I think you've expressed it very well. It's so challenging, Maybe, Dave. Uh, pardon no, I was just saying it's so challenging, you know, because I so many people constantly are like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go into my wounds when X, Y, and Z are, you know, different or when these sort of circumstances feel good to me, you know. And and I think that can be a, a trap in a sense, you know, that nothing is never going to be perfectly safe for us. Yeah, it's really about trust, isn't it? That you totally. would have to trust the world around you and the people around you. Right. And trust means that you have a sense of safety and security. Mm-hmm. Those legitimate things to want. And when a society is not offering them, it's scary for everybody. And then we wind up being more and more paranoid rather than all joining in under the social contract to uh, make a better world. Better world would be one that's based on justice, peace, and love, rather than injustice, war, and hate. Mm-hmm. And we are all in post-traumatic stress right now because we've just emerged from that kind of government and society. Mm. So, you know, that's what's meant by, you know, healing the society we're trying to to move in a whole new direction. Mm-hmm. One of the lines, and I can't remember if it, because I have so many of your books, I can't remember if it was from How to Be an Adult, but you said, whatever we are not changing, um, we are choosing, right? Which is a, it's an amazing statement, but it's pretty, pretty intense statement, certainly. And I um, recently, I was following some conflict that was happening or dialogue, I suppose, on Facebook. And someone was talking about how they felt that cognitive behavioral therapy was actually a, an oppressive um, and, and highly, I can't even remember, the racial, racially unjust tool because it suggests that people who have had trauma and experienced depression can just change their minds and, and you know, be able to make different choices and stuff. And the dialogue was you know, people saying, this this therapy should be banned and it it's so you know inappropriate for anyone who's ever had trauma and this is i mean again this fine line I, I think of being very sensitive to what people are capable of doing but also not writing off the possibility of every human being to to be able to reflect on their own mental processes can you say i mean any sort of reflection you have to that yes what's helped me the most with that issue 
is the wonderful prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr, written in 1943 and now used by 12-step programs. May I have the grace of serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. So we're always looking for that combination, that I'm going to bow and say yes to the givens, the unalterable conditions of our existence. But I'm always also going to look for little spaces that I can enter where things can be changed for the better. And I'm going to engage in that. And I'm going to keep looking for the grace. And that's what it is. Grace, you can't just, you can't just have wisdom. It comes to you as a gift from the universe or from a higher power than your ego. And uh, those are the three things that help us bring about a balance, the serenity, the courage, and the wisdom. Mm. So that's how I would size it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's again that, like, just the very sensitive approaching of, of each human being is like, where is this person at right now and what can they handle, you know? But it, it sometimes... Um, it's difficult. I work predominantly with uh, indigenous populations up in Canada and have had conversations with, um, you know, clinicians and they say indigenous people cannot heal until the rest of society has no racism and, you know, is, is free of, of these oppressive structures, you know, and I mean, we know that that's not going to happen anytime soon. We're working on it certainly and aspire to that, but to set up the conditions where like a person is going to wait until the outside again is perfectly safe or, you know, is, is comfortable for them. It seems, you know, rather tragic, I suppose, in a healing sense. And there is that, I mean, I think that's where the bravery comes in is that it's not going to be comfortable, certainly to move into the process. It's not going to be easy to just, you know, start looking at our own stuff, I suppose. No. And, um, that's why we, um, continually need to ask for support, mm. both from the people around us and the people who are trained to help us, mm-hmm. and from powers beyond ourselves that want to ally with us, mm-hmm. work with us so that we um, activate the best qualities that humans can have. And it's, again, there's such a shamanic quality to what you just said, you know, that in when people are truly deeply traumatized and, and actually incapable of receiving support from other human beings because they're they've received so much wounding and and you know don't have trust or faith in in other people that the encouragement is to go to saying thank you to water or the trees or the air or something that is non-human in nature so as to develop that sense of being held again, the sense of, of having support, you know, that is not so scary as, as human beings are. So That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you. And it reminds me of that little moment in Buddha's life mm-hmm. when he was asked by his enemies, how do you know that what you are teaching is real? How do you know that it's true? Mm-hmm. How do you know that you have an accurate take on the spiritual life? He touched the ground, mm-hmm. the earth, 
He said, this is my witness. Yeah. It's not up here in my mind. I don't have uh, scholars who are doing research that shows that my approach works. The only thing I, you can turn to if you want to find out whether what I'm teaching is real is right here. Mm-hmm. Nature. Mm-hmm. So I love what you just said. And yes, we want to turn to things in nature now as allies rather than just things. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of a quote by uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson when he came here to California to see the Redwoods and spend time with John Muir. After his experience, he wrote, the incommunicable trees convince me to stay with them and leave my life of solemn trifles. Hmm. So like the trees were kind of making the case for a different way of living. Mm-hmm. In that sense, uh, our appreciation of the seasons, our appreciation of the beauties in nature and the dangers mm-hmm. give us a good sense of what's also in us. Or another way of saying it is nature, too, is part of the metaphor of full humanness. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of what you see in nature and what you hear from the wise teachers over the ages. Mm. And the pleasure of interviewing um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass um, a few months ago. And we were, I mean, talking about the, the Anishinaabe, you know, traditional teachings, which uh, echo the same, that if you want to be a decent human being, you are saying thanks all the time. I mean, as many traditional cultures emphasized, you know, but I asked her this question of, you know, like, when did we forget that? Like, what happened to us as a, as a human species that we, we, you know, got, we cast ourselves in a sense out of the garden, you know, and, and out of this, this relationship with nature. And certainly she was referencing, you know, Judeo-Christian mythology and, and saying that this now is our, our sort of chance in a sense, or the, the healing that we need to undertake is to, to come back to the sense of, of sacredness and reunification with, with all that is. Um, it, I mean, I always joke because we live on 160 acres and there's like bears and cougars and stuff. And like what you just said that we also have to make peace with the fact that it probably wants to eat us. You know, if we stay out there long enough, it's not going to just love us all the time, but, Um, but that, you know, that, that is a, that's a reckoning that we can have, you know, and then we can get back into this, this quality of sacred relationship with it, which as a person who grew up in the middle of nowhere, you know, I, it's so hard for me to not have that or imagine not having that because I've just always had it. Um, but you know, it, it's such a, it's a, a really fertile question to say, how do we reawaken it? Cause it can't possibly be non-existent in a human being. I, I, I adamantly refuse to believe that, you know, there's a human out there who doesn't want that, you know, that sense of, of belonging to our, our earth. So Dave, can I ask you a question? Um, well, thank you. Uh, can I ask you a question as a parent? And actually, I sit on the local school board because um, I'm very interested in education. And when I was down in San Francisco, I actually had the um, the opportunity to study with Joseph Chilton Pierce a little bit um, before he passed. And just I've always recognized, you know, the, the importance of, of what we're teaching our children. I have two young kids. 
I, a lot of listeners actually reach out to me often to talk about like the, the struggle of being a parent and a seeker and someone who's trying to heal their own wounds and be an adult while they're also trying to raise other human beings. Um, how do we do that? How do we take the principles? I mean, I, I assume I'll answer my question that we need to model it, but like, would you give any instruction to people who are parents right now who are also trying to figure out how to be uh, you know, this type of adult, a fully individuated, you know, integrated adult, or how our education systems need to change. I guess uh, we have to begin by saying it's never, you're never too young to learn how to be human. Mm-hmm. And for one thing, it comes from your own modeling mm-hmm. that, you know, you show them how you are in the world, how you combine respect for yourself and others with taking the bull by the horns when necessary, uh, setting limits where they are required, and of course showing what I call the five A's, which are the components of love in any relationship, that we are showing attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing. Mm -hmm. So that at least as a start on mm-hmm. how to be um, helpful in the family structure. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's we're one of us who ever actually accomplished this. <laughs> we made all kinds of mistakes for which we're sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we keep trying to upgrade how we are with others mm-hmm. and with children especially. Maybe with as little mom guilt as possible, hey? It comes exactly. back to the <laughs> navigating the guilt part, which is so hard as a parent because you're like, oh God, if I would have known then what I know now and, you know, maybe not done well, those same yeah, things. You can always just apologize and say, uh, I'm doing it differently now. Yeah, yeah, totally. We can't make up for the past, but we can apologize for it. Yeah. And change our way of being. Your writings on guilt are, I really... I, I reference them frequently with people. Um, I come from a family who loves guilt, like loves what I'd call toxic guilt, you know, of that, like, I'm just going to rake myself over the coals for saying something that upset somebody, but I didn't mean to upset them or whatever. Like, you know, laying in bed at night, going through every conversation you've ever had, going, did I piss that person off? Or what happened that, you know, might've gone sideways? And and I, I feel very lucky that I didn't get the, the huge amount that you know was sort of common in my family ancestry. Um, but I find that a lot of people, you know, that's one that really uh, guilt really vexes us. Like a healthy relationship with accountability and responsibility, but not, I mean, as you say in the book, not blame, not not this really you know toxic shame oriented relationship with the self. And I mean, this is, in your experience as a therapist, this is something that people can unlearn like, and, and come out of. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a matter of, you know, letting go of that self-shaming mm-hmm. also, not just self-blaming. Uh, it's, it, guilt is about what you've done and shame is about who you are. Right. So we want to... Uh, make up for what we've done that has been reprehensible in some way. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to shame, we want to build our self-esteem so we don't look down on ourselves 
quite so much. Right. <laughs> and we do that through, you know, our, our negotiation or our navigation of these um, emotional states, as you say, like them. And I remember <laughs> years ago, this woman that I was working with, she was like, she said to me one day, like, you are just such an angry person. And I, I spent the whole walk home from work that day being like, I am not, you, you can't tell me this. And I was so pissed off. And about, you know, three quarters of the way home, I was like, oh, actually, I'm really angry. And then it really started studying like stoicism and, and you know, like these practices of, of actually like stopping the anger, not, not repressing it, but like actually stopping it. And I do recall like how I was like, I changed myself. Like, look at me. I, I used to be this really, you know, frustrated, easily pissed off person. And then now I've done this. And then it, it, it furthered, you know, I wanted to kind of take on other stuff. And so that's really what I, you know, got out of your book as well was like, just keep well, taking you. on different layers of that. So well, I'm so glad you found that. Yeah, it's awesome. And by the way, I, before we end, I wanted to mention my website in case anybody wants to go there. And I have some YouTubes as well as some talks that I gave. It's DaveRico.com, D-A-V-E-R-I-C-H-O.com. Thanks, Dave. I'll put it in all the show notes too. And and you have a, a couple new books out that I'm really excited. I had, I had no idea one on triggers and another one on... Um, Becoming a, a saint, as I was reading the, the synopsis. Uh, yeah, one is called Triggers. Yeah. Um, how to work with triggers, you know, happen to all of us. And the other one is called Wholeness and Holiness. How to be sane, spiritual, and saintly. So I added a third dimension to the two in the book that you're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. I went from just psychological and spiritual to a third option, which is sanctity, kind of uh, that occasionally in life we do something heroic or extremely generous or unconditionally loving. That's called sanctity or saintliness. Mm. And something that we can all aspire to. That sounds like an amazing thing. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for all the gift of all your teachings and and who you are. We are all better off for it. So um, I will include in the show notes for everyone uh, links to Dave's information and website. And uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, Thanks so much, Dave. Take care. Thank you, Sam. The Knowing is an IntelliKey production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm